You're listening to a recording of a sermon delivered at St. Rose Community Church. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.sdrosecc.org. Good morning. If you're with the threes and fours class, you're dismissed to your class. Thank you for worshiping with us. If you need a Bible, uh, just slip up your hand. We've got extras coming down the aisle, and they'd be glad to bring you one. If you've got your Bibles, open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And we'll begin reading in verse 14 here in just a moment. I'd appreciate your prayers while I preach. As you can hear, I'm a little froggy this morning. My throat is a little sore and I had the privilege and joy of preaching to a a youth retreat this weekend, uh, which was about four sermons over the last 36 hours, and uh, a lot of singing and yelling with kids, so I don't have much voice left, (laughs) so I pray that you would would pray for me as I preach just to make sure that I can get through uh, and you can hear me well. Uh, So we're going to be working through 1 Corinthians chapter 4 this morning, uh, verses 14 through 21, and so let me read that for us. And, uh, and then I'll pray for the Lord to grant us understanding. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 14. <clears throat> I do not write these things to you to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? All right, let's pray. Uh, Lord, this text seems somewhat obscure. Uh, Maybe there's some difficulties in how exactly to apply this or to see the example that's given here. Father, we just pray that you would guide us by the hand of your spirit to understand what model is being put before us as the normal Christian life, the normal Christian mission, what it is you're doing in the world, God. I pray that you would shape our thinking this morning, that you would encourage us in the work that we're doing as a church, that you would challenge us in the work that we're doing as a church and as individuals in our lives, God. We pray that you would just guide this time and that the word of God would, would edify us this morning, would change us, would encourage us, convict us, shape us, stir our hearts to worship the God of this word. Uh, Father, we pray, speak by your spirit. We pray, speak by your grace. And for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Verse 14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed. Verse 14 is a clarification. Paul is clarifying 
his own motives for the types of things that he has been writing thus far and the types of things that he will especially be saying over the next two chapters. Paul has said some very direct things to these Christians. He's written some very difficult things to these Corinthian Christians. He has called them out over the last paragraph. He's called them out for their arrogance, their divisiveness, Earlier in the book, he's called them out for their spiritual immaturity. He has said they are very much like infants in Christ and that they should be teaching others by now. They should be mature by now, but they're still sort of babies in Jesus. And so now he wants to clarify. Let me, let me, let me try to explain why I'm taking the time to write this letter. That's a good question. Why would he take the time to write this Letter. I mean, doesn't he have enough going on in his life? I mean, doesn't he have enough persecution and hardship and difficulty to worry about? I mean, why even worry about writing back to the Corinthian church? Isn't there more missionally advantageous things he could be doing with his time? Couldn't he just forget about these guys, move to the next place? Why put this kind of work into a letter that for all uh, extensive purposes is probably just going to make them angry unless the Lord really moves in their heart to see the things that he's writing about. Well, underneath everything in this text, underneath everything in this letter, and really all of Paul's letter, there's, there's an understanding. And so if you're a note taker, write this down. This is sort of a fundamental thing happening in the mind of Paul as he writes. Truth number one, God's mission is a disciple-making mission. God's mission is a disciple-making mission. That means that when Paul landed in the city of Corinth with the best news in the world, that they could be forgiven of all their sins if they put their faith in Jesus, and then people believed that message, that was just the beginning of a work, not the end. His initial work of sharing the gospel with these people began something in the city. It began a process where these Corinthian people would come to believe Jesus, but then learn how to follow Jesus progressively over time. A church is a group of people in process. I would say all of us are people in process. We've put faith in Jesus, but we have much more believing in Jesus to do. We're a group of people who fall into sin and then help one another crawl back out of sin. We're a group of people who are committed to growing together to look more like Jesus and to accomplish the mission Jesus has put us on. We're disciples and we're disciple makers. So, so Paul writes back to the Corinthian church, at least in part because he wants them to grow in godliness. For a year and a half, Paul taught the church in Corinth in person, and now from a distance, he still cares about their disciple-making mission. That's Paul's driving force in his life. That's the driving force of St. Rose Community Church. And we, we exist to make disciples. We exist to follow Jesus and then to help each other follow Jesus, and then to encourage the world around us to follow Jesus. But oftentimes, uh, that mission that we're on can kind of get muddled. It can kinda, you kind of forget um, what it really means to be a disciple of Jesus, but even more so what it means to be a disciple maker of Jesus. I mean, what does this look like for you in your life? So what I think we have in this paragraph 
is at least a window into Paul's thinking and his relationship with the Corinthians over time. So look back at verse 14 again. He says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed. So Paul says, I'm not trying to make you guys feel bad here, okay? Like, like I'm not trying to plunge you into shame and guilt with the, these direct things that I'm saying. He, Paul is not sitting in an ivory tower kind of chuckling to himself as he writes about those sinful Corinthians down there while he sort of feels good about himself that he is not as they are. Certainly, it would have been much easier for Paul just not to write to them at all. So why does he write? Verse 14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Why does he write? He hopes to admonish his beloved children. Now, two aspects in this sentence that we want to look at. First, there's the, or the admonishment part, and then there's the beloved children part. I want us to take phrase of that beloved children part. Paul understood his relationship to the Corinthians in these terms, that when he shared the gospel of Jesus to the Corinthians, and they were born again, right? They, they became new creatures in Christ. They became baby Christians. He understood that he then entered into a relationship with them that was very much like a spiritual father to brand new spiritual children. He became like a spiritual parent to them, a deep relationship to them. Now, uh, that analogy carries with it a lot of things, right? Uh, that analogy helps us to understand the way Paul saw his relationship to these Corinthians. Uh, this analogy will, will certainly mean a lot to you in the room if you are a parent, right? Because there's a certain relationship that you have to your children that is, is different. There's, there is a love that you have for them and a desire for them to grow in godliness. There's a presence that you have with them. Uh, there's a lot that comes with it. That as we begin to unpack, we begin to see that disciple-making is very much like a spiritual parenting. So one of the aspects that we see about discipling is this, and this is truth number two, and then we're going to see uh, several more after this. Truth number two is this. Discipling someone is a relational mission. And there's a closeness of relationship here. There's an endearment to the way he talks about these Corinthian people. There's a desire for them to grow and thrive and to multiply and to make disciples. Paul says his relationship with them was unique, that they've got a lot of guides in Christ, a lot of people that will just say true things to him. But uniquely, Paul was the one that led them to faith in Jesus and helped them take their first steps in Jesus. In verse 17, Paul refers to Timothy with very similar language. Look at verse 17. He says, that's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them in every church. So here's Timothy, another person from a different city that Paul has sort of taken under his wing to help him grow in Jesus. And now, apparently, Timothy's in a place where Paul can say, now you leave from me. You don't need to be in my presence anymore. You can go back to them, and you can be the disciple maker. You can help them grow and be the spiritual parent that they need back in Corinth. This analogy works well for disciple making in many ways. It communicates the intimacy of the relationship. 
And for many of us, it's the relational dynamic that we struggle with most when it comes to the Great Commission. I mean, relationships in churches or in lives or in families or in your workplaces are messy things. They're always one center with another center trying to accomplish some sort of common goal. Relationships are messy, time-consuming, difficult things to manage. Discipling relationships do not happen accidentally. They're not fallen into. They are pursued. And for most of us living in an individualistic type culture, this is especially difficult. For many of us that are part of an older generation that, that, that threw out any idea of vulnerability, that never let anyone see your weaknesses, this is especially difficult entering into a relationship with someone else so much so they become like a spiritual father uh, or they become like a spiritual son, that is a difficult thing. For many of us, uh, we never make disciples like this primarily because we never make time for it. We fill our time with sports and hobbies and entertainment, housework. Uh, Perhaps we fill our time with just people that we like being around the most. And so we don't really have time to establish relationships with either non-Christians or new Christians to help them follow Jesus. And we can all agree in the room that spiritual parenting, or just parenting, requires presence, continual presence. Spiritual parenting uh, requires sacrifice, self-sacrifice in a relational way. And not just spiritual parenting, parenting parenting, (laughs) right? If you're a parent in the room, do not, di- do not divorce the analogy here from the real work of making disciples. If you're a parent, you're discipling your children. You are both spiritual parent and biological parent. <laughs> and, and, and what we see in the New Testament, as it gets messy uh, in, for Corinth, as he's trying to disciple Corinth, it gets messy as we're trying to parent our, our children and our teenagers. This is, this is very difficult work that requires presence with them, time invested in a society which says you don't have the time. This concept of spiritual parenting, it communicates the relational reality of disciple making. It also uh, communicates a little bit of of what that day-to-day work even looks like. Look at verse 16. Chapter 4, verse 16, he says, Paul says, I urge you, I urge you then, be imitators of me. Truth number three, discipling is an example-setting mission. Discipling is an example-setting mission. Paul lived a faithful life in close proximity to these Corinthians for at least a year and a half, and he did so intentionally. He wanted to live in such a way in the presence of these Corinthian converts that he could write back to them a sentence like this, be imitators of me. Now, that's an astounding sentence when you really think about it. Paul did not believe himself to be perfect. We see that clearly in his writings, but apparently he was confident enough in his day-to-day pursuit of Jesus that he could tell this group of people, just do what I do, and if you follow me, because I'm following Jesus, you will simultaneously be following Jesus. If you, if you walk after The way I'm walking, you will be walking after Jesus. And so let me just pause here and ask a few questions. Have you gone deep enough relationally with anyone here at our church or anyone in this community or anyone over the course of your life so that a new 
or an undiscipled believer could watch how you live. Right? That, that requires more than this one hour on Sunday mornings, doesn't it? For them to watch how you live and to learn what does it look like for someone to follow Jesus. Let me have a follow-up question. Um, is your life something you would want someone else to observe? There are kind of two issues. <laughs> There's the, is your life something you'd want someone to observe? Are you making the intentional efforts to have people in your life that they can observe it? Right? We want to live holy lives, firstly because we love God, but we should also want to live holy lives because we love others, shouldn't we? There should be a dual desire there. We love God, so we want to serve Him. But we also, part of the motivations for spending time in prayer and scripture every single day is that we might be a model to those we love. I want every church member in the room to be confident that if they set up a meeting with me during the week, I will have already had a different kind of meeting that morning with my God. I want them to be confident that when they walk in the room to meet with me, I've already met with the Lord that day. I want my kids to understand that daddy's first priority in the mornings when they wake up is that, and they run out of their, their room, what they're going to find him doing is having God's ear in prayer and, and having God's voice in the word. I want to live a life worthy of imitation, yes, because I love God, but also because I love you. Because if I don't follow the Lord, then that's going to affect the other people whom I love, who I want to follow the Lord. That's what disciple-making is all about. That's what spiritual parenting is all about. That's just what parenting-parenting is all about. One of, the, one of the reasons that in this church, uh, in this, and, and I know this makes it difficult on parents, one of the reasons of this church that, that after five years old, we want the, the kids in the room with you during this moment of worship is, man, we, just, we want them to watch you worship, and you're thinking, well, I got no time to worship because I'm wrestling him. <laughs> it's part of the disciple-making moment. And so let me just encourage you. When you feel like you've come to church and you're like, man, I got nothing out of that. I will say, no, maybe you didn't get anything out of that, but you gave something in that moment. You gave your children a moment where they saw their parents prioritizing the most important thing in all of the universe. Right? And you may not feel that or see that, but that's kind of the way disciple-making work. It's not a, in a moment, all of a sudden, someone says, oh yeah, I think I'm going to stop sinning, <laughs> right? No, it's, it's a slow drip of faithful witness to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords that over time, people begin to realize I'm more like Jesus today than I was five years ago, or two years ago, or three years ago. Jesus told his disciples, go therefore and make disciples. And what kind of model did he leave for them when he said that? When he said, go make disciples, what immediately happened in their mind was what Jesus had done with them for the last three years. What, what, what happened in their mind was sitting around campfires and eating meals and Jesus using the the road or the tree or the birds or the whatever to then apply eternal true things to their hearts and minds. It's an example setting 
mission, but that's really not all it is. Uh, Yes, we're setting an example. We're trying to live a certain way, Uh, but look at verse 17 again. Why is he sending Timothy? What does he want Timothy to do when he gets there? He says, that's why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved, faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. So Paul had set an example for them, they forgot the example, now Timothy has to remind them of the example that gets taught everywhere in all the churches. And so here's truth number four, discipling is a teaching and a reminding mission. So if I were to ask you, uh, as a church member of St. Rose Community Church, if I were to ask you, are you discipling anyone? What am I really asking when I ask that question? Well, essentially what I'm really asking is, are you committed to teaching and reminding someone the truths of God's word? Are, are you, is there someone in your life that you're committed to sort of teaching and reminding them of the true things in God's word that they tend to forget on a weekly basis or a daily basis? Are you committed to to reminding someone of true things for their spiritual growth? That's the crux of it. Your primary mission as a member of God's people is is to commit to the spiritual growth of other people in your family, in your neighborhood, in your church, to set an example, to teach them true things in the word, and and to remind them of true things in the word. They already know, but they just don't feel it today, right? Like they know they shouldn't be anxious about this situation, but they just, and they know God is sovereign, but what they need is somebody to remind them of what they already know. (laughs) To come alongside and say, I know you know this, but let me read this scripture for you. All things work together for good. All things work together for good for those who love him according to God's purposes. Your primary mission is to, is to go into different depths of relationships with different people different, di- during different seasons of your life to help them grow in the Lord. And that means teaching, and that means reminding over and over and over again. Again, the spiritual parenting analogy comes into play, right? Do you say the rule in your household, don't kick that ball in the living room once as a parent? <laughs> or many times? Verse 14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. That teaching and that reminding ministry, it sometimes means the difficult ministry of not just speaking true things, but sometimes the difficult work of admonishing. So this is truth number five. Five of six, truth number five, discipling requires admonishment, admonishment. So let me me define this word for you. To admonish someone means to warn them of wrongdoing. It's to seek to have a corrective influence in someone's life. Paul wants to admonish them as his beloved children. He's admonishing, again, with the analogy, like a parent admonishes. Now, good parenting corrects their children, right? Good parenting requires correction, admonishment. You're doing this, don't do that. 
you need to do this, right? But good parenting that corrects their children has a particular motivation to it, doesn't it? Do we admonish our children because we like admonishing our children? No. I mean, I I would venture to say that 100% of the parents in this room do not enjoy correcting your children or disciplining your children. Or do we admonish our children because we love them so much that we do not want them to go down the path that we see them going down? Do we admonish our children to tear them down or do we admonish our children to build them up to be what God has called them to be? So Paul's writing to to do this kind of work. He loves the Corinthians, so he's writing to correct them as a spiritual parent who loves the spiritual children and does not want them to venture down the path of destruction. All good and healthy discipline that we give as a parent is corrective. The kind of admonishment we give in hopes of shaping character, protecting them from something that's harmful, leading them to something that will help them, And without this kind of admonishment in a relationship, there is no real love in the relationship. There's self-love. No relationship that's truly loving will continue forever without the opportunity for admonishment, right? This is why the local church itself is commanded to be the type of community where people love one another enough to do admonishment with one another, to correct one another, to say, don't go down that path. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 says this, of the community of faith, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Colossians 3.16 sounds beautiful. It looks beautiful on a canvas in your living room. It sounds beautiful to have the word of Christ dwell richly in your heart, to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, thankfulness to God. But what about this admonishment bit? Sometimes it's not so beautiful in the moment, is it? Paul says we are to open up our lives to one another for correction just as we are to gather and sing songs together. But the reality is is in a lot of churches in America, all they do is gather and sing songs together. And they skip this bit about opening their lives to one another and giving license to say, hey, show me how I can follow Jesus better. This apparently, this admonishing one another as a biblical community of faith, it's part of our worship. It's part of our mission. It's necessary for the mission of making disciples. First Thessalonians, uh, Paul encourages this to happen on multiple levels. First, uh, First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12, he says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So here's the command. Pastors, do not be fearful to admonish people. Under, like, like correct, like give instruction that redirects. Verse 14 though. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. The Christian community is a community of mutual commitment to one another to grow in Jesus together. I love the, uh, one of the Peruvian pastors uh, said in one of our last trips, he said, you know, iron sharpens iron, but they're sparks. 
oftentimes that's a, a difficult concept. But when we do that, when, when we, we love our children enough to admonish them, when we love our Christian brother and sister enough to admonish them, what are we really doing in that moment? But reflecting the grace of our God. God loves you, Christian, enough not to leave you to your own self-destruction. The gospel is that God loves you enough to confront you with the fact that you're a sinner on your way to hell and to say there's a better way. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline you've come to endure. God's treating you as sons. For what son is there from his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're an illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and respected them. Shall we not much more subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. This is what disciple-making requires, the love of God. We're discipled best by people who are willing to admonish us in love. If you want to grow as a disciple in Jesus, if you want to look more like Jesus, if you want to lead more people to Jesus, one of the things you should be striving for is to be admonishable. Strive to have relationships with people whom you give license to adjust your self-perspective. That means striving to be approachable, seeking counsel, seeking correction from others. And if you do those things, what you will find is a closer walk with Christ himself. Now, again, uh, this is not an easy thing. This can be a very hard thing. Disciple making, this type of work can be very risky, right? And when you can, with all the love in your heart, approach someone, stick your head out for them and get your head lopped off. You put yourself out there when you live on mission for God. Sometimes in the local church, unrepentant people can respond very badly to the gentlest of admonishment. Sometimes you can find yourself in a situation with a, even a, a false teacher or perhaps a divisive individual who, who does not respond well to the truth but actually becomes antagonistic to the truth. And it seems like Paul's prepared for that scenario as well as he writes this letter. And I just want you to see the demeanor kind of shift, uh, the transition, the gears change in verse 18 to a new kind of voice from Paul that we haven't heard as much. Look at verse 18. He says, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills and I'll find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Now, until now, Paul has, has uh, talked about the Corinthian church kind of generally, like to all of you. 
But now he narrows down to a select few in the church, some troublemakers who are potentially behind the sort of broader divisiveness or faction splitting within the church. And he says that these people are arrogant and and that they don't think that Paul's really going to show up to address them. So they they kind of feel like a freedom, like, like nobody can stand up against us. These competing leaders that are sort of boasting over their rhetoric, they're boasting over worldly wisdom and elegant speech. They've been taking the Corinthians' eyes off of the cross and distracting them from the cross to to put their eyes on other things. And Paul plans a visit. He plans to confront the powerful and arrogant individuals. He aims to discern whether they really have the true gospel, whether they have the power of the Holy Spirit, whether they're truly serving to expand God's kingdom or not. Paul essentially gives an option here. Do you want me to come in a spirit of gentleness, or do you want me to come with a rod? I don't think physically he's coming with a rod. I think this is an analogy of what type of temperament do I need to come with. Basically what he's asking is, are you troublemakers in Corinth really Christians that just need some guidance, right? Or are you wolves in sheep clothing who need to be removed from the flock? And Paul's essentially saying, I'm willing to do either. What strikes me about the whole paragraph is Paul's confidence in this moment. Because it's really interesting when he's just emphasized his weakness, his humility, his servanthood, the way he subjected himself to persecution. I mean, he has just emphasized all these things that would have made the Corinthians think this man to be somewhat cowardly or timid or unwilling to put himself out there. But now we have this picture of Paul that, yeah, I'm willing to be weak for the Lord. Yes, I'm willing to be persecuted for the Lord. But it's for the Lord. Yes, I'm not confident in myself, but that does not mean that I am not confident in something. And this is truth number six. This is the last one that I think we see here. Discipling requires confidence in kingdom power. Confidence in kingdom power. Now, what is kingdom power? Well, I mean, he's already articulated it in the book, hasn't he? Verse 18 of chapter 1. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us being saved, what is it? It's the power of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Paul says, My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So what's Paul's plan when he comes. What's he trying to discern? He's trying to discern if these, Christian, these Corinthian leaders have really trusted the cross of Christ or whether they have trusted the wisdom of man. And Paul comes with confidence because Paul, Paul comes knowing that he's believing the right message, knowing that, that he has the Spirit of God with him, knowing that he's following Jesus, knowing that he's not hiding any sin, knowing that he's presented his life and saying, I'll say whatever you want, I want me to do, I'll do whatever you want me to do, knowing that God's sovereignty guides him. So, so he walks into the conversation saying, I'm going to say this if the Lord wills. So where's Paul's confidence in this moment? Not himself. But the word of the cross and the spirit of God who's with him. Now, obviously, Paul's apostle task is a little bit unique to ours. I don't know if any of you 
are rolling up into a church next week that's doing false teaching and confronting the leaders uh, that you, uh, a church that you planted. But I do think that his confidence in kingdom power translates to our lives. Let me just pause and encourage you, Christian, do not be afraid of the mission of God he's called you to. Do not be afraid of what it takes to be a disciple maker in the broken world. Don't be afraid of the hard conversations. You have ground, not grounds, not for being an arrogant person, but grounds for being a confident person, a missional person, an evangelistic person, a discipling person on the grounds of God's promise to you that God's spirit has been given to you for the work that he's Whatever he's called you to, he equips you with. The promise of kingdom power is what Jesus left his disciples with, trembling on the mount as he, as he uh, ascended to the Father. He gives this promise, Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The question is not whether God will supply the power for gospel ministry. The question is whether we'll be a faithful witness of Jesus who relies on that power. I was sitting up here in the front seat before I preached this morning thinking, God, I don't feel good right now. <laughs> I honestly don't feel like preaching. And every single time before I preach, I've got this agreement with myself that I will not stand up and preach a sermon unless I have gotten into a posture of prayer on my knees. If nothing else, as a symbolic reminder to me that I have nothing to offer in this moment of preaching. If nothing else but a symbolic reminder to me, I'm the helpless one in this scenario in need of power that is not my own. Christian, when you walk in that kind of disposition, not just to preach a sermon, but to make it through homeschooling that day or your work that day or the conversation you know you've got to have with this brother or sister in Christ, God, God's good on his promise to give you the power you need to do the things he's called you to do. He's been good on his promise to me over the last 30 minutes. I don't know if this is blessing you. It's just blessing me to remind me that, that it's kingdom power that I, I need in every moment and every day. So here's what we've looked at so far. Let me recap and bring this to a close. Uh, six truths. Uh, God's mission is a disciple-making mission. Discipling is a relational mission. It's an example-setting mission, a teaching-reminding mission. It requires a a admonishment, and it requires confidence in kingdom power. And so let me just give you one big takeaway that I would encourage you to this morning, and it's this. Seek out discipleship. Seek out discipleship. Seek out relationships with people who will commit to teach you and remind you and admonish you to grow in Jesus. Seek out relationship with people whom you can commit to, to teach and remind and admonish them in Jesus. This is Christianity 101. This is what we do as a church. We love the Lord. We make disciples. We plant churches by his grace, for his glory. Let's pray. Father, I just want to 
take a moment and just praise your holy name for the ways that I see this example being lived out everywhere in our church. I am so encouraged as a pastor to hear of, of, of people in our church faithfully discipling other people whom I had no idea they were discipling. I hear about lunches and coffees and brunches and breakfasts and late night meetings with, with uh, uh, people at their workplaces and in their homes and here at the church, meetings that I never knew were happening where, where, your, where your people are trying to do what Jesus did. And so God, I, let, me just, let me just pause and praise your holy name for the way that we see Paul's example uh, being lived out in this room as we imitate him, as we imitate you. And so, Father, we just thank you for the discipling work that has happened in this church. And God, all we're here to do this morning is to say, help us to persevere. Help us to keep going. Help us to keep doing it, Father. Help us to, to not get distracted from this very simple, very primary mission that you've called every person in this room to participate in, God. So I just pray, help us to be a discipling church. I pray for the unbeliever in this room who does not know you. To, I pray that, that they would be enthralled by a, a picture of a God who loves them enough to warn them that they're on their way to a godless eternity unless they turn to the salvation that you provide in Jesus Christ, the one who died the death they deserve and rose again on the third day. God, bring them to faith today. May they believe in Jesus this morning, and may we have a whole church community of people ready to step next to them to become like spiritual parents, spiritual guides to them to follow you, Lord. Lord, this is what we desire. Every week when we gather together, every day in our homes throughout this week, Father, we want to be disciples of Jesus who are making disciples of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.